0: Hi everyone, I'm Helen Kim and on behalf of Equity Foundation and the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales, I'd like to welcome you to the Equity Foundation's Health and Wellness Series. So firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations and pay my respect to the traditional owners of country, throughout all our country and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land and we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Kia ora to our New Zealand counterparts as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. So the entertainment industry differs in many ways from other industries. And indications are that we as practitioners in the creative industries are under serious mental health stresses in these COVID-19 times. Our hope is that through this series, we'll go through some ways of unlocking and discovering methods to keep ourselves mindful, present, and to give us the tools to deal with the challenges that we face. Today's session will run for approximately an hour with question and answer time, hopefully at the end. Due to Dr. Julie's demanding schedule, we have had to pre-record some of these sessions. So thank you for your understanding. If you do have any follow-up questions and you'd like that to be answered, please, please just send us an email to info at equityfoundation.org.au and we will endeavor to get all those answers to you post-event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Julie Crabtree. Some of you may know her from our previous events, from the foundation that we've hosted in the past, but Julie is the go to person on health and well being in the creative mind space. Her work with people in the creative industries draws over 27 years and As a psychologist, she's been working in both private practices and with organizations like us. She holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and her doctoral research into creativity and mental health means that she is at the forefront of our understanding of how to be both healthy, happy and creative. And by creative, we mean all of us who work in the creative industries, helping to tell the stories that are essential to our way of being in the world, be it crew, cast, production, and so on. And on that creative note, Dr. Julie Crabtree, it's all yours. Thanks so
1: much, Helen, and welcome back. It's lovely to be here with you again. We're doing a session on anxiety. It would be my observation, and certainly the result of my research, that anxiety um, continues to be a huge issue for those in the industry. In this session, we're going to kind of introduce anxiety, but in particular, I want to kind of focus on what I guess I would call overdriven thinking and its impact on anxiety. I want to kind of start with a little bit of reminder for those of you that may have just joined us for the first time, I'm going to be briefly talking about some of the the research findings over the last 20 or more years. So in one column, you'll see the psychological language. In the next column, it will be how we will make reference to them. So we know from research that creative thinkers are naturally divergent thinkers. This type of thinking is rapid fluid thinking, able to make unique associations, we call it fluid thinking. Creative people have got greater openness to experience, they are more novelty seeking and exploratory, and we call this kind of an attitude of risk. Creative people have got reduced filtering, they've got a reduced ability to filter out irrelevant information, we call this skinlessness. Creative people have got what's called high neurosis, which means they've got that incredible ability to feel their own pain deeply and feel other people's pain deeply. Creative people have got what's called impulsive non-conformity in terms of personality feature, which means that they are wired to see the world in a very unique and different way. And also creative people are comfortable with complexity. They don't need one plus two equals three. That they... They are comfortable with some of the greys and the nuances. Now I've talked about quite a number of these factors in the previous session on resilience, but I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview before we move into the particular area of of anxiety, because it's, it's drawing from some of these factors that gives you an understanding about why anxiety may be a particular issue for creative people. In fact, researchers have known generally that those that seem to have what's called high neurosis, I know it's a bad word, but it just means quite sensitive, that those that are highly sensitive score highly on, on neurosis are those that are very prone to anxiety. So it's not a surprise that anxiety is a particular issue for the creative person. So this is our understanding of what anxiety is. Anxiety is a persistent feeling of nervousness and worry and a sense that something is going to happen. It's that kind of underlying kind of nervousness, that kind of underlying gnawing worry that happens. That's kind of anxiety. And we're going to look at it in three different ways. Today, session one, we'll be looking at overdriven thinking. Session two, we're going to do a little bit of a dive into perfectionism. My observation that with those that work in the industry, perfectionism is something that is a very, very constant companion. And perfectionism can very much drive anxiety. The third session will look at at the fact that creative people are naturally highly imaginative. You know, as Helen was saying at the beginning, you're the storytellers. So in order to be a storyteller, in order to imagine a role and part you've got to think imaginatively but the very quality of thinking imaginatively can be the very quality that helps you think highly catastrophically so we're going to be we're going to be exploring that in session 3 so I want to just talk a little bit about the difference between anxiety and fear and this comes from a well-known researcher and theorist in anxiety called Barlow so I'm somebody that is, I, I'm, I'm really very scared of snakes. Okay, so as happened to me, I walked outside and there was this huge diamond python that was in our backyard. My response was very clear. I screamed, I thought it was a present danger and threat. I ran into the house, I locked the door. My, my body went into f- fight and flight. There was no freezing that went, I climbed up on the table and And normally with fear, when you feel safe, then the fight flight freeze reduces. And it's a response to a a, a perceived real fear. I know right now that all those in New Zealand that may not have the snakes (laughs) will will say, I'm never going to go to Australia again, even if you're allowed to. Um, Anxiety is something different. It's a response to a potential threat. It's... The, the threat of perhaps losing your job. It's the threat of what the future in the industry will look like. It again is future focused. It's got a whole lot of avoidance behavior, the what ifs. What if, what if I, I don't work in the industry again? What if I lose my job? What if things don't come back? It's all of those future focused gnawing feelings. And there's no really clear resolution because it's something that happens in the the future and you are constantly dealing with the imagined false alarms. And of course, this has cognitive or thinking, it impacts our physiology and it can impact our panic response. So in terms of the physiology, I want to talk to you with anxiety. We understand anxiety as being very much a physiological response in that when we think about the perceived threat, the what if, our body produces the adrenaline and the cortisol. The adrenaline has the effect of increasing our heart rate, our breathing rate, taking everything away from our immune system, our digestion to our extremities, giving us what we need to fight, imagine me fighting the the Diamond Python, or flight, which is what I did, which is run really fast and jump on the table. The cortisol has the effect of just generally increasing our energy levels in order to give us what we need in this kind of burst. And we saw what that's like with, with the fear response in that we get this surge of adrenaline cortisol and that's supposed to resolve. But with anxiety, it's like we've got the gnawing adrenaline cortisol kind of churning around. And we get what's called allostatic load, which is the wear and tear in our system over time when the person exposed to chronic stress and worry. It represents the psychological consequence of chronic exposure to fluctuating or heightened neural or neuroendocrine response that results from repeated or chronic stress and anxiety. So it's it's like this constant worry Am I going to lose my job? Is the just going to get back? I'm producing the adrenaline cortisol, but it's, no, it's not resolving. So we've got the increased heart rate, the breathing rate. We've got the flow away from our digestion, away from our immune system. And we're left with this heightened physiological response. And that's the wear and tear of the anxious person on us. So that's why it's a really good reason to um, to begin to address anxiety and the impact of anxiety, I'm going to show you a clip from a LA-based actor who did this incredibly funny, you know, kind of scene a- about uh, anxiety. And what I want you to do is I want you to just notice some things. So this is um, this is the clip. My cat
2: Congress kept trying to pee he was in his litter box for like 10 minutes, then I found him in the bathtub, then he was in the corner of my office, back to the bathtub, and I had to take him to his litter box again, all in like an hour. So finally, I did some Google searching to figure out what the hell was going on, and it turns out that this is a dangerous sign amongst cats, because they can have an infection or blockage, which can be fatal. Now, there are two kinds Those who are good and handle it and get things done, and those who freeze. And in those freezing moments, your imagination runs frickin' wild. Until it gets to the point where you're all, Uh, Miss Akana, you've had Congress (laughs) dead! I'm sure you know what I mean. It's like when you hear a strange noise in the house, and for a split second, you're like, oh my god, there's a serial killer rapist who's broken into my home. Until you realize, oh wait, no, I have to look at it. The imagination can be a great thing, but I think you have to be careful. Otherwise, you'll fall into paranoid thinking and eventually indulge in dark fantasies. And I don't think that's healthy. No. Oh, Congress is fine, by the way. He's got to switch over to a bladder healthy diet for the rest of his life and he's high he's on drugs right now like running around and he's extra and heavily because I guess he's basically on opium so I'm going to make cats really loving I was like hey give me a lifetime supply of opium I'll give it to all my cats so they love me but yeah I'll uh, see you next week
1: okay what did you notice what did you notice was going on what indications of anxiety did you see Did you see first how, in some way, she was talking about how fast she was thinking? Did you notice that she was immediately went to, I'm seeing something, to future thinking, the catastrophic thinking that imagines the worst possible scenario? Did you notice how her imagination was taking her there? Are you aware of what would have been happening in her body? how hard her body would have been working, how her voice was fast, her breathing was shallow, how she was running around. There's a lot of wear and tear on her body just through the, the stress of an anxiety. And, and so it's a really, I, I guess, kind of playful way of helping you re- begin to recognize what are the indications of anxiety. And the reason I, I kind of explained the research at the beginning, because she's seeing firstly that thinking fast means that you're very open to thinking about anxious thoughts fast. You are also highly imaginative. So it's good. You're gonna be imagining catastrophic things and that you're feeling things deeply. So the, the intensity of the motion is very, very strong. So, a lot of those things are associated with, with anxiety. So let's look at why creatives, as I said, are particularly vulnerable to anxiety. As I said, divergent thinking, thinking fast, overdriven and catastrophic thinking, high neurosis, feeling deeply. This is one that wasn't in the in that clip, but is relevant. The paranoia. They're all talking about me and judging me. And creative people are often, or those in the industry are often wired for affirmation. And so it's easy to go from needing the affirmation, you did well, that was great too, you know, they're all judging me, or why haven't they responded to, you know, to my social media post? Why haven't they come up and said that? So it's very easy to become quite paranoid, vivid imagination I've talked about. And this is another one that I won't really spend any time on, but it's it's certainly supporting the research. And that is some of the exploratory risk taking that I mentioned can lead you to taking risks with your body and your safety. And that can often lead to greater exposure to trauma. And we know that greater exposure to trauma can lead to increased anxiety. So it's, as I said, it's one of those things that's definitely in the literature but as I said, I'm not gonna cover it in this, um, in this session, mainly because it's probably not appropriate to cover in this um, more remote way of communicating. I want to just flag as well, something that we uh, uh, discussed in one of the earlier sessions. And that is, we talked about the fact that creative people live what we call a tidal life. They've got a number of elements that they, they operate in tides, either high tide or low tide. And I use the example of the person who who, um, when they go on stage and perform or on the set, they have to believe that they've got something to offer. They have to believe that they're the best at this. They've got to believe that what they bring is incredibly important and significant. That's kind of the inflated ego state. But often when they come off stage or come off set, that, that they can drop easily into that deflated ego, which is, ah, oh, this is terrible is the worst thing I did. And you can move between those highs and lows. And we can talk about that in different elements. And we did spend some time in previous sessions talking about attitude, the non-conformist and conforming. We talked about sense, the skinlessness and insulation. We talked about emotion, intense and detached emotion, and, and action, risk and safety. I wanted to put it there because we're going to talk a little bit more about our thought. And in order to be, to think creatively, in order to imagine roles, in order to write amazing scripts, we have to be divergent thinkers, which means that we're thinking fast and making connections all the time. In actual fact, this is one of the primary ways we understand what it is to be creative is fluid divergent thinking. But as I said, you can't stay in that place of divergent thinking because there has to be some aspects of craft. You have to engage in a different thinking process in order to you know, just live your life. I, I want to talk about what happens when fluid thought the natural fast connections that are part of the creative process become, um, have this threat or worry or anxiety under, underneath them. Imagine the fluid thought when you, you are worried about your future, when you're worried whether the industry will go back again, when you worry if you can ever perform again, when you worry if they're going to ring for a job again. Imagine what it's like for that natural, fluid, creative thought to be um, focused on anxiety. And this is what we talk about. It, it fluid thought can easily become overdriven. As I said, looking at that, it, it's the necessary part of fluid thought, necessary for creativity, has the same neurocognitive pathways, manic thinking and amphetamine use. so. When that actor mentioned opium and the cats, you know, she was, she she may or may not know that to be a creative thinking has got the same pathways in the brain as when we're wired with amphetamine. Implies the ability to store and rapidly retrieve information, requires unstructured, uncensored environment using intuitive and playful processes. But as I said, when it has worry underneath it, you can easily move into very, very anxious thinking. So I guess that's why I imagine for for many of you, you are aware that you're thinking fast. You're aware that you're worried. You're aware that there's something kind of driving you and you are just kind of constantly going over things, ruminating on things. So let's talk about some practical ways we can begin to uh, address some of that. The first thing I want to talk about is our sleep and circadian rhythm. So when we're anxious, we find it harder to sleep because our body is constantly being pumped with the adrenaline and cortisol, which is keeping on the alert, and it's not giving us permission to rest. And so learning how to manage our sleep patterns is an incredibly important aspect of anxiety. Heart aspect, there's there's a part of our brain that has an internal clock. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. That clock determines how how each cell of our body is primed and wired. It, for example, determines when our brain releases the melatonin that prepares us for sleep. It's the, the clock that determines when our brain releases the serotonin that tells us it's time to wake up it's the part of our brain that releases the digestive juices in our stomach to tell us it's time to eat. So this is a really, really important part. And when we're anxious, as you can see, we're not sleeping and we're not eating well. And so getting our system back into its right rhythm is really important. So you would know some really good sleep hygiene patterns like putting your phone out of the room, not reading from your screen late at night, doing things that are gonna wind you down, you know, whether it's having a hot shower or bath, not having energy or caffeine drinks late at night, and just perhaps even having a wind down routine. That the idea of that kind of internal clock tells us that that our bodies are wired for, for routine. If you start teaching your body that you're about to wind down to sleep, then it's going to start preparing the cells in your body for that. Now, it may not mean that you you have your winding down technique tonight and you're going to automatically go to sleep at 10 o'clock rather than two o'clock. But over time, over a month or so, it will teach you. It will help you learn to begin to wind down so we often need to put in place these wind down techniques for at least a month before they take effect. I think kind of herbal and natural substances that help you wind down to sleep and calm you are really, really helpful. If you don't know what those are, then go to your pharmacy or your natural health store and just ask for some substances that are gonna help you begin to calm yourself coming into sleep. And, and again, it, you know, um, our, our daughter, who's uh, highly creative, coined this phrase, 2 a.m. rush hour in my brain. And that's a classic creative, highly overdriven, divergent thinker, fluid thinker, who's just wired in the night, teaching a thinker to begin to slow down so that they can start being in bed by 10 o'clock and get ready for sleep. Now, I hear you saying, but what happens when I'm a performer? You know, I I can't wind down until, you know, 12 or one. And I go, yes, of course. Uh, But what we know from sleep research is that those that are on kind of shift work, which a performer often is, that our body does not adjust to those type of sleep patterns. The best way we have of managing the, the shift work of performance is when we're not performing, get ourselves back to normal sleep. Because what you find is performers just get naturally wired to, you know, they can't go to sleep till 2 a.m. in the morning. We know that that's not necessarily helpful because you don't end up waking till nine or 10. So you don't feel like breakfast. So all of the internal clocks that keep us healthy and well kind of get out of whack. And I read some recent research early this week that even more so linked poor sleep and unhelpful sleeping patterns with poor mood. So I would just give yourself this next month to begin a wind down routine and to try and have, you know, even if you don't feel like breakfast, at least start having something just so that you you teach yourself the pattern of sleep and eat because it's it's helping to re- reorientate your body, overstimulation. I've said before that um, social media, we know is bad for our mental health. We know that, but for the highly wired fluid thinker that is deeply feeling and craves affirmation and is a little wired for paranoia, it's your crack cocaine It's something that is so, can be so debilitating and drive your anxiety. I can see people that are quite okay and then they go into social media and suddenly they've got a panic attack. And I go, social media is something that we can, we have control over. I know that for many of us, we have to be on social media for our jobs, but but we are the ones that are in control of that. We can limit it. We can put in place apps. We can say no. We can not engage. In fact, you know, I was talking to somebody early this week, and this person has started to put in place just some boundaries around her social media, and immediately she's feeling less anxious. So be aware of your other kind of constant input. Are you somebody that has constant noise? And needing kind of five screens happening, kind of watching TV and having five, you know, other screens going on. Like that's just this constant bombardment that is that is just driving you. That's why we talk about anxiety being something about overdriven. It's kind of like you've got this internal driver that is constantly winding you up. From a physiological point of view, it's kind of it's fueling the adrenaline cortisol. So creating a still space and routine can be really important and that's why in the early sessions I spent some time talking about mindfulness practices because it's creating a still place, it's telling your brain that it's okay to slow down, it's okay to distract itself, it's okay to have these moments where you are not being constantly distracted. I think that being highly distracted is one of our modern contemporary issues that we need to learn to deal with. Obsessive thinking, again, one of those thats that I've seen again and again, um, and that is obsessive thinking is when you get into this neurocognitive loop and go round and round and round. We think of brain wiring and thinking as like ruts in our brain and the best image I can think of for that is, you know, thinking of, uh, of kids playing with cars in the dirt and the more they roll the car over the dirt, the deeper the pathway is, they're creating a dirt rut. If you pour water near it, the water is gonna find the dirt rut and go on it. So as an example of our, our thinking, the more we have the thought, I'm going to lose my job, you know, I'm never going to get back. So that's a kind of a neurocognitive pathway and it's a negative one. So we're going to imprint it fast. The more you go over that way of thinking, the deeper the cognitive rut will be in your head and the more your thinking is going to divert there. You know, when you're kind of sitting there dreaming, you're going to go to your obsessive thinking, your rut, your rumination, so we have to start saying stop and no and blocking. It's like blocking the rut. And if you can think of this image of you know, a little, a little boy or a little girl having this kind of dirt track with the car and the water being poured into it. What you're doing is you're building up a dam so the water can't flow in the rut. And in the same way, think of ways in your brain you can just go, no, I can't afford to think about that. I can't afford to imagine bad things about my future that aren't real. You know, as we saw in that kind of clip with that, with that actor, you know, it, it wasn't true. Her cat wasn't about to die. It wasn't true. But the wear and tear on her body and her emotions and her thinking was extreme. We've got to stop our thinking ruts. Technology overload I've kind of referred to And again, substances, when we're anxious, we often try and manage our anxiety through substances. And I go, it, it doesn't solve the problem. For example, talk about the the alcohol, you know, we're feeling anxious. So we drink some more. When we drink some more, we can tend to have problems sleeping and feel flat and depressed, which kind of means that our anxiety can become depression. So just, facing up and noticing your substances and managing your substances. When you're anxious, when you're feeling wired and when you've got all of that energy going, you can feel like you keep on needing these bursts of energy. So you're needing to drink more and more caffeine just to keep you wired. So and all it does is it just means you're you're expending more energy so you drop. So monitor your stimulants. We're going to be talking about some of these other other things, perfectionism, insecurity, paranoia in other sessions, but choose one of these things we've talked about, you know, sleep patterns, establishing a routine, practicing mindfulness, creating still space, learning to manage your obsessive thinking by by using stop examples. And I think in our first series, I I gave you a, a thought stopping exercise that will be available online. So that's something that maybe you can try, Um, put in place some technology free time, face up to any use of stimulants or substances and begin to monitor those and begin this kind of one month challenge to better manage your anxiety. So we're going to pause there for this session. Next session, we're going to be talking about perfectionism. As I said, I think, an oldie but goodie for the entertainment industry. Something that, that I've seen is a really common concern for them. So we're going to be talking about perfectionism. But in the meantime, have your plan for how you're going to begin to tackle your anxiety. And um, we'll uh, talk again in our next session. Back to you, Helen.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, that, I can't afford that phrase is so helpful and powerful I think I'll use that quite often <laughs> of just like yeah blocking that imagery of like damn like no this is not a pathway I'm going to allow mm-hmm. um, because we're so used to saying like yes and we want to help we want to be helpful we want to you know do anything to share a story and then mm-hmm. we're always like allowing things to yes. happen and even yeah. with like money and stuff and time we get that blurred but even Mm. like mentally yeah just knowing like what we can afford Mm. is very powerful so you did say they were thought stopping exercises Mm. because you know like before you go into a audition or go on set a lot of acting coaches say like work on your breathing work on your voice but Mm. what about mentally what are some warm-ups Mm-hmm. Um, that aren't on that thought-stopping exercise worksheet mm-hmm. that you think could be helpful for fellow mm-hmm. crew and actors out there?
1: Well, I think uh, I'm not necessarily talking about before an audition, okay. but yeah. let's say you've got a, a rumination. Um, I'm never going to perform again. The, you know, there'll be no jobs. You know, that that is being a kind of chronic worry.
2: Mm.
1: You know, my first question is there is no evidence for that. We only have what's now. And what what's now is difficult, but that rumination ha, has no evidence. You know, hopefully by 2021, 2022, the industry will be back again. So we can, if we, you've got that as a common rumination, what you can do is, as I said, this thought stopping exercise. And what you can do is close your eyes and if you like, Helen, um, I can take you through it and so okay. you know we'll help other people do it. Yep. So I'll get you to close your eyes and I'll get you to imagine that you're in a car and you're in a stop sign waiting with your car. Now I want you to let that stop sign fill your brain. I want you to ask what shape is, the, is your stop sign? you know, um, does it have six or eight size or is it a circle? Is there a border to your stop sign? And if there is, what colour is it? What colour is the main background to it? And then we're going to go to the words. And I want you to slowly trace around the S, trace around the T, trace around the O and trace around the P. What is the font of it? What is the the colour of it, how much does it feel, your stop sign? And once you finish that, I want you almost to take a mental photo of that stop sign. And when you're ready, just slowly open your eyes again. So, Helen, when you did that, one of the things we noticed was that when you were imagining the stop sign, you couldn't imagine your worry. Yeah. So you were building that mental dam. Mm. When you were when you were imagining it, you were kind of almost distracting and filling your visual frame with an image that is a cognitive and visual reminder of stopping. You can build the slow breathing with that as well. But um, at, if you practice the stopping exercise, then, then you can be sitting there and you can have the rumination come in and you just say stop and you can visualize it. And you might need to do that 20 times a day. But the more you do it, the more you're stopping the rumination. And slowly, research suggests it, it will begin to decrease. So that's a, just a simple way. It takes about a minute or two to begin to stop some of those kind of ruminations that are happening. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, that was really good. When thoughts come Mm. you're like quite frazzled and you might think like oh no stop stop this isn't healthy or this isn't Mm. good but it's like a skimming stop it's not like a stop yes you know and paused and elongated and um Mm. weighty so so Mm. what did you notice when you did that well I was concentrating so hard that (laughs) like you know what font it was what color it was it wasn't just like oh yeah I know it like I was actually you know, mm. saying it in my head yes. that my brain is so busy saying what I'm thinking and visualising mm. that I couldn't think of other, other yes. things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It kind
1: of absorbed you. Mm-hmm. And, and probably if we would have um, taken a check, let's say you were thinking about anxious things beforehand and um, we would have taken your kind of pulse or we would have taken mm-hmm. adrenaline mm-hmm. cortisol, we probably would yeah. have seen an increase and then a drop because you're absorbed with something that was neutral not something that was
0: anxiety producing that was really good I wonder what kind of questions they might have because I I feel like maybe one more but I do feel like a lot of the questions I had that you you might address in the next few Mm -hmm. like the highly imaginative and the perfectionism side Mm -hmm. because um One thing was I feel like I procrastinate trying to be perfect that I Mm -hmm. stress that I'm procrastinating and it's not perfect and it's not produced, like, that pathway. But, yeah, and then it causes that cognitive Mm. loop of that. Yes. But, yeah, I think that stop sign will... (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, so I get mm-hmm. you to practice the stop sign the yeah. week. And for those of you, as I said, you've got some things that you can try and the stop sign is one of those, but there's some other things for you to try over the period of time until we come to perfectionism, mm. which I think um, we'll need preparation for. And if you want to do a little bit of preparation, just understand and just notice. Um, and as we talked about in the first series, become aware of some mm. perfectionistic thinking that um, that you can pick up over the week.
0: Yeah. And that um, internal clock, that was yes. good to imagine as yes. well. I was actually watching it like tick-tock, tick-tock. Okay, it's time for this. It rings and then it's like travelling mm-hmm. and sending yes. messages.
1: And, and it's called the super mm. nucleus. And so it's this really tiny thing in our brains. And we don't know that every cell of our body is kind of almost got the suit this internal clock that's why helping us um, with some of those routines can be helpful for the for the creative for those in the industry routines can be felt to be boring like don't don't send me to an office every day doing the same thing (laughs) Mm -mm. but there are some routines that are really helpful for us Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's what we're clicking into. And this is why some of those routines are helpful. Like you've got a routine of sleep, you've got a routine of waking, you've got a routine of eating, you've got a routine of exercise. That's why they're really helpful because it's how our body set up to, to work well.
0: True. Thank you so much, Julie. Always learn so much on during these sessions. And thank you everyone for joining us today and a huge, huge, huge thank you to our Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales for making these series come to fruition and possible for us to help us during these times. We have more to come, so two more, one with the perfectionism and one with the highly imaginative right? yes Yes. um coming um addressing on anxiety Mm. which is a very huge and scary topic but you've unpacked the first part so nicely in a fun way so everyone please keep your eyes peeled for upcoming events via facebook page or our instagram and also in our equity foundation evils so thank you stay safe and creative bye bye